Hey guys, welcome to another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. I'm Josh Horowitz, and welcome to another edition of my podcast. This week's episode is a truly fantastic, brilliant filmmaker. I know I'm throwing out the superlatives, if I can speak, and the adjectives, but uh, I can't say enough about Terry Gilliam. He ha- he holds a, a truly important place in my heart, as you'll hear in this conversation. My very first recollection of seeing a movie in theaters is going to see Time Bandits, which should tell you all you need to know about the film lover I am today, because I did love his work from the start. Uh, he has made, I mean, just to rattle off a few off the top of my head of films that I love, Brazil, of course, uh, Baron Munchausen, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Twelve Monkeys, which is truly one of my favorite movies, um, and not to mention The Fisher King, which I know a lot of people watched again recently in the wake of Robin Williams' passing. It features an amazing performance from Robin, and, and actually one of my favorites from Jeff Bridges as well. He is thankfully still working, still hustling, still trying to get budgets, uh, even in this time when studios are not so anxious to fund the bizarro brain of Terry. Uh, he has just made a film called The Zero Theorem, which is now out in theaters. It's also available on VOD, probably where you are. It starts Christoph Waltz and Matt Damon, and it's kind of a view of the future, but as you'll hear Terry describe it, it's also kind of a view of our present. Uh, it is uh, It fits very much, I'll say this, into the Terry Gilliam oeuvre. You'll see, when you see it, you can uh, immediately recognize it as a Terry Gilliam fa- uh, film, and I, and I count that as a high compliment. Um, Terry was kind enough to come by the uh, bastion of corporate greed and commercialism that is Times Square, which felt so ironic to me, given what an iconoclast he is, the other day to talk about Zero Theorem and a great many other things. This is a very candid conversation from a filmmaker who uh, who it hasn't always been an easy path for. Uh, he's had notable failures as well as notable successes. So um, I know this was a huge treat for me, and I think if you're a fan of movies, and in particular an appreciator of of all things Terry Gilliam, you're going to dig this one. Uh, as always, guys, please hit me up on Twitter, Joshua Horowitz, and review and rate this podcast on iTunes. Spread the word. And uh, in the meantime, here he is, the crazy loon, the awesome man that is, and the great filmmaker that is Terry Gilliam. Oh, cozy room. Here. Cozy. Oh, look at this. Welcome to my palatial. Oh, this is very nice. This is all yours? This is me. This is me. Do you like what I've done with the place? It's pretty. Um, oh, yeah. The light is uh, disconcerting. Oh, what a beautiful um, building across there. The view is wonderful. It's, it's a hotel. I saw a uh, naked man uh, last week. It was really exciting. Really? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> This is, this what is, more can you ask for? Like, do you keep a mirror here so you don't have to turn around? <laughs> exactly. Um, yes, the heart of Times Square. I feel like there's there's irony in bringing Terry Gilliam into the, the bastion of commercialism of Times Square. Uh, I just find it calming here. Do you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's so, you hate it all so much that you go into a zen place. Oh, no, no, not even in the town anymore. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah. It's... Uh, it is one of the things we were talking about, Zero Theorem, and people, all that. I mean, they, Zero Theorem is nothing compared to Times Square. The oh, no. World. 
It's called provincial. Exactly, exactly. If it's cool, we're off and running too, sir. Oh, okay. Is that okay? Uh, congratulations on the film, by the Thanks, way. I really Sergeant. enjoyed it. Thanks. You've um, you've you've been making the rounds. I know you're. I mean, you're like you're the the show in this one. This is a this yeah. is being sold on your name. I'm the whore. <laughs> Do you feel? I mean, is is that a bargain that you're happy to make? Where you know, if this were a bigger studio film, you'd have that machinery, but there would be compromises, etc. Uh, this smaller budget, but it's yeah. your show. But, that, that but we've been, yeah. I've been doing this since the beginning with Python. We always promoted our stuff because, you know, that was that was what we did. So it, it's not not new or, or strange. It's just what one does. I'm, I am surprised that you know they've not put Christoph to work and uh, you know and Tilda, but but I've got to take the rap for it. So here I am. <laughs> this this one this one feels. Um, you know, we've we, you know I've talked to you. I talked to you once at Comic Con, and that was that was uh, for Parnassus, and obviously that had that sadly mm -hmm. troubles around uh, Heath's untimely passing. Um, and you know other productions of you know it's all been written about to death. But like, do you steal yourself for, for disappointment at this point in your career that something <laughs> is going to come down? Because this one seems relatively um, not yeah. easy, but but, but, but. Yeah, no no no. I mean, yeah, I, I do. I wait for the other foot to, to, to come down, <laughs> the other boot to drop. It's like. It's 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 there. I, I don't spend much time worrying about it, but I am. I don't think I'm prepared for when it goes wrong. I, I'm less patient when it goes wrong these days. I just right. enough of this. Yeah. Enough. How how long did Job have to put up? How many boils <laughs> did he have to deal with? And it's and it no, but this one was smooth in the extent that it, everything happened fast. Once yeah. I started working, and once I got Kristoff. That was in mid-July, and by the beginning of October, first week, we were shooting. That yeah. doesn't happen. And the whole thing was, in that sense, a different experience because of the very speed with which everything occurred. There was no time to think, double think, you know, get it wrong. It was just instinctive. And and rather than bang, there was no time to bang your head against the brick wall. It was like, okay, brick wall, uh, turn left, right. turn right. You know, find another way around it. And... Um, and in that sense, it was really good. And, and what was interesting in this case that there was more work in post than normal uh, in the editing because I shot the script and then decided, well, I think I better rewrite it. Normally, you do that before you shoot it, but uh, yeah, I, I had all these pieces of the puzzle. I just rearranged them a bit. So, did that? Does that mean reshoots, or in the edit room, you're reconfiguring no, kind we, of what? We never reshoot. I've never done a reshoot. So, yeah, it's refiguring. It's like. Okay, we've got the pieces for a patchwork quilt. It doesn't have to go together that way. We can put it together that way. It works better. And it's 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 very interesting because Pat's script was the first script he'd ever written, and it yeah, it read very well. But when it actually came to shooting, you realized, ooh, that's a bit too long. That scene. What's going on? And but we didn't have time to rewrite while we were shooting, so we shot. And. I always love the editing process anyway, because it happens on all my films. I pull scenes out, move things around. This was more so, and uh, in a way, discovered the film in, in the editing room. Is there a sense on set, like, I, I would think, you know, with, with the, the amount of, of experience under your belt, if you know in your heart of hearts that maybe this isn't the scene, it's not to your satisfaction in terms of even in the script stage, and you're on set, and this is what you have to work with, is there a confidence that, like, I know enough to make this, to tweak this even in post. I can figure out a way to make this work. Yeah, I cover my ass, basically. Yeah. I, I don't do, which I did at the beginning, the whole scene in one shot. No, I make sure we've got coverage right, right. <laughs> so that we can fiddle it. Because you don't know, and I, I think in that sense I've become uh, more cautious, less, less arrogant, 
and and I just play it safer because yeah. I I know in editing we can do so much you can really change a film completely sure. so and I'm always in that position where I've got control of it that I can there's nobody over my shoulder saying oh, you can't do that there was producer Casey screaming oh, you can't do that but he had no power ultimately <laughs> is, is there so Christoph is new to your your, your yeah. universe is there a consistency you think in performers that that fit into your bizarre world I know I just like good actors is what I really like and actors that are fearless who are you know who are not worried about their career their image any of those things it's the character and what's the character demand and that's what was wonderful and someone like Christoph is great because he is the film he's never off screen and so we'd get in there on certain days and he says well this scene doesn't make sense to me well, it doesn't really make sense to me so let's do it this way and and we we would wing it because we know the totality of what we're trying to do and right. okay you shift it like that and then it was like that always or there was I shot one I didn't do a reshoot I lied uh, <laughs> there was one bit where the script demanded in his frustration he starts taking a knife and cutting his arm and we did it and it looked it was very powerful but I said, it's too much it's too much so we ended up him just scratching in a nervous way which is it's much better sure. uh, and so those are the things you do but you know you sh I shot the first thing because I was just uh, we're doing the script and then when I looked at it I said oh, you're right this is just too much we're pushing it it's it's and I, 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 I really try to control the, um, the how much suspension of disbelief the audience have to go through <laughs> right right the, the the cast I mean this is it's a cameo I mean actually it's a relatively sizable part Matt did, uh, yeah. you know does a few scenes for this one is this the first instance where Matt Damon has swapped in for a role that was intended for Al Pacino at one point no is this supposed <laughs> to be Al Pacino playing this now? no it was always Matt oh was it really yeah yeah okay. no 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 I, I've been talking to Al Pacino about another film okay uh, fair but, enough no this was Jenny I I had to actually I'd been thinking oh it, it could be Jeff Bridges okay uh, and then I then Matt, I thought, oh no, Matt, would be really interesting. And sent him, well, I didn't send it, I sent him an email and said, uh, I got a small part, it's just a few days, I'll send you the script. He says, don't bother, I'm in. And that's what's great, yeah. to, to have been able to work with great actors like that who are willing to come and play. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and basically do it for, for scale is all he worked for, he just came in and did it. And that's... That's the stuff that I really feel, you know, we, in fact, we made the film because of these kinds of friendships or friendships that one wanted to make in the past and finally got to do it. Right. Tilda Swinton, Ben Wishaw, they all came in, eh, just a Peter Storm, eh, worked for scale, yeah. man, this is fun. Do you, do you consider this um, a depiction of, of the future or a depiction of where we're at now? Well, when I started, it was the near future, and as we were shooting, it became the past. <laughs> it's a period now. Yeah, it's a period piece. <laughs> it's a period chamber piece, exactly. So what, what's rattling around in your head in terms of like the, what, what you're, again, it's amazing from what I've read that the budget is not exorbitant, but what you're able to achieve is extraordinary, and, and especially in those first few scenes where you have to set up yeah. what is a very highly stylized and, and unique uh, vision. Like what, what's rattling around in your head and what you're trying to capture? Well, that, the, strangely, the script described a world that was much more Kafka-esque. It was dark and dreary out there. And I said, no, no, no. Because I was, I was always aware that it would be compared to Brazil because it is a, a companion piece. There's no question about it. Because it's my way of looking at the world now, which Brazil was about looking at the world then. Just the fact the world now is like the world I imagined then. <laughs> you are so, prophetic, and, and, sir. Yeah, and this one, I seem to be a lot of my prophetic skills because it's now history, <laughs> what you see. 
<laughs> it's, uh, it, it, it goes on. So, no, it, it was just, I wanted, the idea was, I wanted to make the world not a, a dark, gray, dreary uh, place. I wanted it to be the dream come true. Everybody's bright and bouncy. Ads are flying around. I mean, we're here in Times Square, and there, there it is. And it, it was about the idea of a colorful world where everybody's happy, they're zipping around, shopping is wonderful, 24 hours a day, all the things you've ever wanted out there. And it gave you a chance to throw other ideas in, like, you know, Batman the Redeemer, the church of <laughs> Batman the Redeemer. Because as we were walking here to, the, to your, your fabulous studio, well, I Thank to you, say, sir. Uh, <laughs> I wish the world could see it. Now you know why we only do audio in here. <laughs> Uh, we're in the broom closet. It's not the one Monica Lewinsky used, I'll tell you. It's not in the White House. It's, but, it's uh, bright. My apologies. Do you like the fluorescent light? It is good. It is good. It makes me feel and look as old as I am. Me um, both. Anyway, no, no, just walking here, I passed uh, guys selling on the street all these comic book images. Yes. The new religion is ah, the new hero. It's, 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 I mean, Jesus is pretty exciting, but these guys really do some <laughs> get down and dirty. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and you really feel this is taken over. Yeah. I mean, the old, the old religion, the old way of describing what the world is has been replaced. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, it's a chance for in in about you know thirty seconds to take the piss out of a great chunk of the world that totally. exists now. And it was also to set up our main character who can't deal with this, this, uh, this inundation uh, of, of information and noise, and we'll fix your problems, we'll make you rich, we'll make you happy, all those things. He can't deal with it, and that's why he has to go back to his burnt-out church. <laughs> Literally, yes. Yeah. <laughs> what, um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned religion. Uh, I had the privilege of, of uh, sitting down talking to Woody Allen recently, and it stri strikes me, correct me if I'm wrong, you consider yourself an atheist, yes or no? I, I wish I was that, that committed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. I'm a pagan. Okay. <laughs> but, I mean, Woody uh, said to me, and he said to many others, that, you know, essentially it's all just biding time, where it's a distraction. We're just trying to distract ourselves from the inevitable. Would you subscribe to that theory that, that it's... Yeah, I, I think I'm a bit more optimistic than him. Not, not, no, no, I'm actually probably more nihilistic than he is, or nihilistic. <laughs> I, well, here's what's interesting. The thing I discovered, and this is why you make a movie, and then discover later what you've just done. Uh, the crime isn't uh, obvious when you're doing it. Right. Uh, <laughs> but the name Cohen Leth is the character that uh, um, Christoph Waltz is playing. And I only discovered a couple of weeks ago in a uh, Canadian blog review of the film that because Pat Russian wouldn't tell me where this name comes because it's an odd name. Yeah, and it's basically a play on Koalef, which is Hebrew for Ecclesiastes. The preacher, the teacher of Ecclesiastes, is Koalef. And and strange enough, I was working on a preface to this autobiography that I'm apparently writing, um, <laughs> and it was going to be again with vanity of vanities, all is vanity, which is the opening of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes is the one book in the Bible that has pessimism, even cynicism in it, or wisdom in it, yeah. all of those things. And it's about the meaningless of all these things we do, all, you know, to, to, to rise, to become a king, to become powerful, to be rich, all those things, they're meaningless. And that is at the heart of this film. I mean, Koa, Cohen left is dreaming of the black hole of nothingness, of just, right. it's nothing. And, and it's, it's, so the trick is, how do you find meaning in this nihilistic universe? And you know, 
Either you do it by getting your new iPhone, queuing for days to get the new one. <laughs> days away as we take this. <laughs> and, and that's it. Or, or, or you, you know, religion is very good on many levels. I just don't like it when you know, swords have to clang. Right. But, and, and I don't like it when religion has to demand that my version is the only one and you must die. Uh, so that's my problem with it. It's, it's very comforting. And it's, to me, it's the easy way out for a lot of people. Right. In life, it, it, it's on. They buy it. It's okay. a certitude. It's a... Yeah. Exactly. Brothers Karamov, the pre Brothers Karamov, the brother who is a priest, his dream, because he's a doubter, he's, he's tortured. If only I could be that 300-pound peasant woman who goes into the church, lights candles, and says my prayers, and everything is fine. Right. But no we're questions, not, just yeah. this is the path. Yeah. But unfortunately, intelligence takes that away from here. You have to, right. If you have to think, and I've always been keen to try to encourage people to think. Um, if you'll indulge me in going back a ways, uh, you should know that uh, five-year-old Josh Horowitz, uh, his first film in a theater was Time Bandits. I do apologize. <laughs> was that good parenting or bad parenting? What that do we think? That was great parenting. <laughs> that was fantastic because there the child, the boy, was freed from parents who don't listen to it. This is true. This is true. <laughs> it rocked my world. Uh, I, try, I came home and tried to push that wall and it wouldn't go. <laughs> Um, what do you, uh, what was, I'm curious, that film, um, was that intended for, did you imagine children would see that? And what did you, what was your intent in that in terms of an audience? What were you thinking? It was, I was trying to make Brazil at the time, and we had a company called Handmade Films, which was the, the combination of George Harrison and Python right. as a result of Life of Brian. And Dennis O'Brien was our manager, and I was trying to sell him on Brazil, going nowhere. And so I just went home one, one weekend and said, okay, going to write something for all the family, for everybody. And basically came up with the idea, and then got Mike Palin, and then we, we wrote the thing finally. And it was, that was the intention. And, and I, at one point I had an ad line that it was exciting enough for adults and intelligent enough for children. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what it was. Truly. I mean, the, we had huge battles with Dennis uh, over the ending because the idea that the parents are blown up, well... They didn't learn their lesson. They should listen to children. Right. <laughs> is the point I was making. <laughs> it does strike me when looking at your films, like, I can't imagine a few of, the, a few of them, which were studio films, um, even 12 Monkeys, which isn't that long ago, I, I would have trouble imagining a, a studio yeah. making that film now. Oh, it would never happen. I think, I mean, we now, in the world that we're talking about in Zero Theorem, the corporates, the corporations and the corporate thinking rules. Yeah. More to the point. They're timid. They're timid. They're frightened of uh, taking chances. Uh, no, I, I don't know. I find the current state of the cinema is, is really depressing. And that's why uh, I'm getting more and more interested in uh, cable TV. Oh, let's, let's go, go down that road. I know you said you, re you recently were into Breaking Bad. Are you finding you're watching more and more? Well, yeah, I just finished watching The Killing, the Danish version. The oh, original. I haven't seen the original. Okay. It's fantastic. I don't know what the American one is like. But yeah. But the original one is breathtakingly good. Yeah. And, and, and you're seeing great writing re and, and great characters. You don't, you're not relying on movie stars. You've got people who are right for the part. Imagine that. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and it's just 
the, the audience is being treated like intelligent human beings. Truly. I just saw, I, I've been talking to everybody, I'm, I'm late to the party, but I just saw Fargo, which is a 10-episode series which Coen's had nothing to do with, but is a masterpiece. It's, it's just like, I can't believe it, it exists in this world. It's a wonderful thing. I saw the, the first one. I haven't seen the rest. I should. I should. Ex extraordinary. Yeah. And the Coens, in the end, just put their name on it. I think what happened was it was pitched to them, and basically they looked at the for script or the treatment, yeah. and they said, Godspeed. Which is oh, it's great. It's, it's wonderful. I mean, yeah. I started watching Justified. I was getting quite mm -hmm. into it. Again, from an Elmore Leonard short story, becomes a multi-series <laughs> episode. Amazing. Uh, thing. And it's, but it's, again, the writing is so good. The dialogue, I believe those people. And the faces aren't, you know, famous people. They're real people, it feels right. like. Right, right. Well, because I heard somebody saying, I can't remember who, back in the day, it's like, you know, there was a, a time when Richard Dreyfuss was a movie star. Today, Richard Dreyfuss would not be the lead of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Yeah. No. Or Jaws. Or Jaws, exactly. <laughs> Roy, Roy Scheider, where would he be? No. No, I know, this is the thing. You, I, I, now we're, uh, I don't know how to deal with it. it. It just strikes me, I mean, I was always a comic book fan. I would love to have made a comic book film, but not now. Yeah. Not in, in the new world that's out there, because it's... I must admit, on the other hand, the first Avengers that I saw, I'd say three-quarters of the film, I was really enjoying it, and then they had to blow up the city. It's just stupid, because it was a good character piece for a long time, and then it went, eh. Uh, so comics, which were always, you know, um, dangerous, are now being tamed. Yeah. And that's sad. Do, do they still come around your way? Do they know better that it's not even on your radar? In terms Nobody of pitching the on my door. Oh, please. <laughs> I don't believe that. <laughs> I don't even have a door anymore. <laughs> Poor Terry. <laughs> um, did you, uh, I mean, so you mentioned Avengers. I mean, do you, do you make a point or do you avoid, like, blockbusters? You know, there's, like, I mean, for my money, Dawn of the Pine of the Apes was one that, 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 that actually surpassed kind of the mm. trappings of a blockbuster this year. Do you just avoid those wholesale? I've, I've, been, I've been, yeah, I'm just prejudiced now. And I'm, yeah. I'm sort of holding on to my prejudices. Even though I'm sure I'm missing a few good films. <laughs> do, do you, I mean, the last, what, the last studio one was Brothers Grimm? Was that? Yeah, if you call the Weinsteins a studio. Oh, boy. <laughs> Down that path. <laughs> Studios are easy to work with. <laughs> <laughs> the only disagreement ever over a prosthetic nose in the history of... Most expensive uh, nose, yes, exactly. But it, apparently it got us two more, two million more on the budget. <laughs> so the, the deal was that Matt, what you wanted Matt, yeah. and Matt wanted it too, presumably, to yeah. have a... It, it actually, it, it, it really changed Matt. Actually, it gave him a, a different kind of attitude. It was quite interesting, and yet the, the, the wine scenes felt that nobody would recognize him. What? It was a little bump, a tiny bump, which... Matt, if you've noticed in all the Oceans films, all this, he's been wearing noses the whole time. <laughs> and yet we still recognize Matt Damon. It's that funny. Remarkable. When 90% of, of your face is still there, people recognize it? That's odd. I, know, I, think, I, think, I think they were anti-Semitic. <laughs> the true. Weinsteins are anti-Semitic. They thought they I made, made Matt too Jewish looking. <laughs> so do you imagine, could you imagine a scenario of working with a studio at this point again? I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I found that the studio films I did were Fisher King and uh, Defective Detective and, I suppose, um, um, Fair and Nothing in Las Vegas. Mm. And they were the easiest films I did, almost. Because the studios, they make a lot of noise, but uh, they're, not as, as, as they're not berserkers. Right. And I can be. <laughs> and it was a very easy thing with the studios. I, in, in those instances, I didn't have an official final cut. 
their secret letters tucked away that could be brought out in court cases later. But, <laughs> but, but I didn't final cut. But what I did know that in Fisher King, if Jeff, Robin, and I stuck together, they wouldn't touch us. Same thing with um, Tall Monkeys. Yeah. yeah, with Bruce and Brad. And, and, and I always planned those. Who's going to be in the foxhole with me for the final battle? Right. And, and, and that's it. Because what they're very good at doing is trying to isolate everybody and just like any... Uh, good cop who's trying to make a group confess. <laughs> it strikes me you mentioned Twelve Monkeys and, and Bruce. Um, I mean, it, it, you've said this before. I think initially you wanted Jeff for that, Jeff Bridges for that. Um, and it strikes me because because Bruce has somewhat of a reputation, and and there are there often um, feels like you know maybe he's coasting sometimes. It's hard to actually see him acting in a role. It's rarer and rarer. Was it? Did you get a different um, Bruce Willis on set for, for whatever reason or whatever oh, place yeah, he no, was in his life? I think it's one of the best performances he's done. It's totally. incredible. But he wanted to show the world he was a serious actor. That was the thing. He had come out of um, Pulp Fiction, and he was very pissed off because he didn't get nominated because Harvey and all they put and Travolta, their wisdom yeah. gave it to Travolta yeah. and, and Jack, Sam Jackson. And the film got made because of Bruce, so he was really pissed off. And you, don't like a, you don't want to pissed off Bruce Willis. Probably, yeah. <laughs> and he wanted to show he was a serious actor. And I, we met in New York, and uh, I said, "Listen, I, I just want Bruce Willis, the, the actor, to turn up. I'm not the superstar. I don't want to work with that guy." Yeah. And you've got to come with nothing, which effectively uh, he did come with nothing, and it, he worked really hard. And I think he's wonderful in it. Yeah. And it was, again, it was playing completely against character in both cases because you know he barely speaks in the movie. He's very laconic and it's very internal. Where Brad, who's more like that, yeah. had the motor mouth part, which he'd never done. So it was the joy was, uh oh, the they, place they, is on they know fire. you're in Times Square. No, it's on fire. <laughs> the building is burning. Damn it, we're finishing this podcast, Terry. I'm sorry. <laughs> if we have to die, we die. <laughs> and, and what was so wonderful is, is to cast opposite uh, what they, they were known for. And they both just rose to the occasion. And Brad was at the height. I mean, that was like Legends of the Fall, like the most romantic, like, hero at the time. And he was this twitchy, bizarro he, I genius. Mean, he did, I think he did his own haircut. His old terrible. It was his idea to have the, the skewed eye. Yeah. All that stuff. It was, it, it was such an extraordinary time because before Legends came out, you could wander around, you know, with Brad around town. And people could just buy very nice day. Yeah, legends turned up and security arrived. Oh, yeah. He couldn't move. Totally. <laughs> um, one, one infamous story, I mean, speaking of, like, your, you know, flirtation with giant franchises, is, is you were supposedly the first choice that J.K. Rowling wanted for Harry Potter. Did you have many conversations um, with her, with the studio? Never have met her yet. Really? Yeah, I know, but it was the producer, David Heyman, said that she wants me, and he wanted me. I read the script on my way to meet the studio, and I knew why, because, well, she'd clearly seen Time Bandits and Monty Python, and, if you, and I just knew how to do it. It was easy. It was just, and, and, and the studio was doing what they do, their due diligence. They were showing that they had really met me and talked to me seriously so they could then tell her he's not quite right. But they never, in your mind, they didn't have an intention of going. You were no. too risky to them. No, there was no, there was no way. And but the sad thing about it was I got into the meeting knowing that all these faces were against me. And as I do when I start talking about things, I begin to convince myself of the and ideas were coming out. I was really flying, and I actually know that I changed a couple of them to think this is the guy. But the main guy, whose name 
we don't even mention because he's been forgotten on every front, is, was slowly dozing off over there. And I said, and I just knew, it's not going to happen. Um, but I did get a first-class flight out there. <laughs> I got to do some other work on other things, so it was well worth it. Can you say anything even in that initial meeting of what your take might have been on, on that? Uh, it would, would have been closer to Alfonso Cuaron's version. As simple as that. Yeah. I think he did the good one. Yeah. His was really good. Chris Columbus's, is, there's nothing wrong. I mean, it's solid, but it had no magic to it. Yeah. it? And it wasn't dark enough. It didn't capture it. I mean, her writing was, was always funny and dark and, 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 and sweet all at the same time. Yeah. And Chris got some foot. <laughs> uh, some of your other work I, I, I need to hit on, Fear and Loathing, which is uh, a remarkable film. Um, how much, I mean, I don't know what your experience with drugs were in the past. Um, did any of that inform what you were trying to achieve in that? No, I've never, I've never been into drugs. I mean, pot makes me implode. I don't <laughs> like it. Uh, cocaine, after a couple times with cocaine, the hangover from cocaine is so ugly. Never again. <laughs> No, and acid, I always said I was going to take LSD when we finished the film. I still haven't done that. <laughs> so I'm a pretty drug-free zone here. But that doesn't mean I can't hallucinate like right. people on drugs do. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, was the goal, I feel like I've heard you say this, was the goal to like kind of approximate some kind of uh, trippy high in terms of like the experience of watching that film? Yeah, it was just to just go. Go, gonzo filmmaking is my approach to it. Just do it. And, you know, it's things like, there's a moment when Johnny and uh, Benita are checking into the hotel and there's a guy on the phone and the carpet starts crawling up his leg. Well, that, walking around Las Vegas, that was my idea. It's not in the script, not in the book. It was a, it's the carpet. I mean, it's really vegetal. And I mean, it doesn't take much for this stuff to start happening. So I can do that stuff very easily right. uh, without uh, needing uh, artificial stimulation. Uh, and it, it just... I don't know. It, it's stuff that I do without analyzing or even intellectualizing. I just it seems to make sense. Yeah, that makes sense to do it that way. <laughs> do, do, do you find that? I mean, do you ever worry that 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 the, does the well ever run dry? Do you feel like imagine you have a finite amount of imagination, a finite amount of great ideas in you? Yeah, it's it's dry. No, it's not. <laughs> I think we're here. <laughs> and now at the moment, I just don't. I don't know what's going on. I don't feel. Uh, I think I've had this weird experience. Normally when I make a film, I identify it with the character, either when we're writing it or as we're shooting it. I have to identify with the characters. I've become Cohen post-film. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Do those periods happen where you're like, yeah. that's it. I don't have another one in me. There's nothing left. It's over. <laughs> well, there's always Don Quixote. Oh, that's even more painful. No. <laughs> Why? Well, I mean, well, I was an email at 5 o'clock this morning. I won't go into what's going on. Oh, no. <laughs> well, maybe we shouldn't go down this road, but I'll ask, just ask this. Why, why the impulse to keep going back to something that's been, had caused you so much pain and frustration over the years? Uh, stupidity, pig-headedness, just to show the world uh, reason does not triumph. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It, it is, it, it's, I, I've recently been describing it as a tumor that is kept growing and I have to excise it if I ever get my life back. If I'm ever going to survive, I have to get rid of this thing. It's not because I have to do it or want to do it. I just need to get rid of it. <laughs>
<laughs> is Defective Detective another small tumor growing? Well, it's very funny because I'm here in New York and I'm going to be meeting up with Richard Legravenes, who wrote Fisher King, yeah. uh, who wrote on Defective Detective with me. And, and we're thinking, is it possible to stretch it into an eight-part TV thing? I don't know yet. Intriguing. Um, no, because I, I think we reached the point. I mean, I, I was reading on the way over here. And it's almost a bit too big for films. It's, it would, on the other hand, it it's so much more imaginative than anything you see out there. Yeah. Um, and I just wonder if by giving it more space, it can play on a completely different level with still all the the amazing leaps of imagination. I mean, this is the problem now. When you see films, I don't find them imaginative. They're technically imaginative. They're visually imaginative. But they're not about ideas. They're right. not about things that make you shift your perspective of what the world is or how it works. Right. I just saw his, um, I was in Toronto, I saw The Last Five Years, which he wrote and directed, uh, Richard Legravenes, which is a musical. Oh, this is musical, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a good piece of work. Um, mm. I mean, you've never done a, a musical, correct? No, I, I've, I've always been thinking of it, but now Clint Eastwood is in doing musicals. So right, all that's all too late for me. <laughs> too late. But it feels like it would not be a, a big leap. I mean, your worlds <laughs> would lend themselves to something well, yes, grandiose to, and... Yeah, I mean, that's why, in a sense, I've been doing opera. I mean, I've done a couple... Right. It's just probably the, the same thing. It's just, you're working with music and imagery. Uh, I, I just... The, the right one hasn't come along for a long time. Well... Years ago, I was really keen on making Candide, the musical, into a film hmm. with Johnny Depp playing Candide. And this is, this is way back, this is Fair and Loathing time. And, and I just, because I love that musical, I think it's a great musical, and I, I love the story of Candide. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, oh, this would be fun to do. It didn't happen. <laughs> do you, um, uh, you must have, uh, I mean, I know just among my brethren, um, uh, many admirers, but also among filmmakers. I know that the Wachowskis recently hit you up and brought you into their bizarre universe. Um, how did that how I did played that a part in uh, the Jubilee setting that Matt Damon isn't playing. No. <laughs> uh, that's it. He was busy doing You're You're the second choice for Matt Damon. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think. be Jason Bourne next time around. Well, he is doing another one, apparently. Apparently, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, uh, what, did you have much awareness call of their work? Again? <laughs> just like they should. Uh, um, no, it was fun because the Wachowskis, I do think, are quite extraordinary filmmakers. Again, they've got interesting minds. Definitely. And um, and they wrote this part. That is, 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 in their minds, it's a bit of an homage to Brazil. So I'm this, this Clark behind the desk of this place. And it is the most shameless overacting I've ever seen. <laughs> I'm really curious if it's still in the film. <laughs> it does strike me that they are, I mean, the fact that they got Cloud Atlas made mm. at the budget that they were able to, um, I loved it. And I know it has its its fans and detractors. It was a very divisive film. But um, we need more people like that. We need more people yeah. that are willing to go. No, I know. And that's, but the problem is the money. It's the cost. I mean, they need a lot of money to do what they do. Uh, Jupiter Ascending, uh, I think, is, is a more normal film after Cloud Atlas right. because they kind of licked their wounds and felt like, gotta, okay, you've got to play it a bit safer. And that's the problem with large budgets. That's why, in the case of Zero Theorem, I mean, six years ago when the idea first came up, it was a $20 million film. We made it for eight and a half. So for that, I have freedom. Yeah. Uh, the problem is you don't then have uh, a big studio with this huge outlay that they've got to get some money back and they'll put in $80 million to promote it. Right. 
And so that's why I'm talking to people like you. <laughs> and I'm appreciative of that. <laughs> yeah, you've, I mean, look, I remember years ago, like, Thailand, which must have been a frustrating yeah. moment for you because you Same thing. you were out there literally, like, what, at the Daily Show, right, on the yeah, line? Yeah, on the streets. <laughs> I'm shameless. I don't, I don't care. I mean, yeah, that was really, it was good fun because my daughter, because there was no... No ads, no posters. It was opening on the weekend, and so she convinced me to do something. I put, uh, it was actually, I don't know if it's still on YouTube, but I, I mounted the poster on a piece of old cardboard and then wrote, studio-less film director, family to support, will direct for food. <laughs> and, then, and, and then with a plastic cup and a few coins in it, went working the, the, the queue outside the John Stewart show. And it was wonderful. I made $25. I was going to say, you got eight and a half million to make zero theorem. Thank God. <laughs> and so it's like, look at David Lynch. Same thing. The film directors who really are out there taking chances we can only do it now with much, much smaller budgets. Uh, and I, I mean, I, what I love about Zero Theorem, I look at that, most people see it, would say, oh, what did it cost? Oh, $25, 30000000 million. Exactly, yeah. No, eight and a half billion. And, and part of it is because people like Matt, Tilda, David Thewlis, Ben Wishaw came and worked for scale. Right. It, so you rely on friends to, to help you through these things. Uh, and I don't, know what, I don't know what Jim Jarmusch's budgets are. They're very low. I mean... So who are the the Coens have done very well, and I'm glad they have because I love the Coens. I think they're smart, and their their work is always interesting. But there aren't many. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen Tusk? Yes. <laughs> I'm curious. Wow. I just found out about it today. It is. Uh, it, I think it, it accomplishes what it sets out to do. <laughs> I'll say that. No, I enjoyed it on some levels, it, it, but it, it is bizarre and uh, okay. maybe one of Kevin's better films. I would say actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, you recently. Uh, got together with the guys for these crazy performances of Monty Python. Um, was that something that, it sounded like there were different, everyone kind of went into it for maybe different reasons or maybe same reasons. Mm -hmm. Money well, was, was involved. Well, money was important, but that, you know, some needed the money, some of us didn't. Uh, <laughs> but there was the, the group ethic. That, yes. You know, if a group is going to do something, you stick by. I, I was not interested in the show because I've got less to do than the others. Uh, um, and I had plans for this year, right. <laughs> doing something else. But it worked out brilliantly, and it was it was actually great fun by the end. I mean, I just it was a ball because you got sixteen thousand people who love you. <laughs> good for the ego. Yeah, and out you come on stage, and ah, you fall <laughs> on your face. They love it. Oh, you forget the lines. They love it even more. It was fantastic. It was. And, and, and the surprising thing about it, we built this beautiful and big stage, and, and the uh, arena, the O2, is vast. Yeah. But it never felt it. It actually felt intimate because you could feel the, you know, the audience. They sure. really loved it. And you'd come out on the stage and do get away with murder. Sure. In high school, you'd be thrown off. <laughs> but here, it was beloved. Speaking, speaking of stage work, have any of your films been adapted or has it been talked about in terms of adapting for the stage for musical or plays? Somebody was talking about Brazil uh, wanting to do an opera of it. But no, uh, not really, no. Okay. Uh, I mean, it, it was partly why for years I had been... Um, people have been trying to get me to do opera because, you know, Munchausen, all these films, uh, there's always a theater in there. It's theatrical. Yeah. It's like that. And it, it's only been in the last few years that I've done a couple operas. And 
I don't even like opera, but it's uh, but they've been unfortunately hugely successful. <laughs> <laughs> Sucked into that. A, I know because it said it puts a. Pre- I still don't think I know how to do opera, <laughs> but they worked. Well, what about like, gaming, video games? Does that interest you? I keep thinking, why shouldn't I be doing video games? Because this is where it's, my mind works. And world building. I mean, you create yeah, worlds, know. and that's what's so. But nobody's come about. knocking on my door. This door that is waiting to be knocked upon. People. Yeah, I know. No, I think video games, because I would love to do one where you're not shooting up everything. You know, yeah. usually things that are clever. Years ago, years ago when video games were CD-ROMs. I remember. The early days. Mm-hmm. And I did actually start designing a game. I was with a company that went bust. <laughs> but, I, but I was doing stuff that I see being done now. I mean, mine was always going to be more interesting. We, I mean, there, a couple were, I think it was a game made out of uh, Holy Grail, right. uh, which I'd never played. But I still think that would be fun to do because, yes, a chance to create a world and you can do things that are mind-bending. Yeah. <laughs> and people can have fun doing it. Uh, you can really, as they say, fuck with their brains. Sure. <laughs> well, I would think part of the excitement, yeah. uh, if there is any excitement in 2014 <laughs> in our world, is that there are different platforms that are accessible to us. Whether I mean, like, I would think you can, you know, you can brainstorm an idea and then you can kind of see what path it goes down. Is it, is it, is it TV? Is it film? Is it yeah. gaming? Um, there are different avenues. When 20 years ago it was you were singularly, singularly focused on film. And I think the problem is now because things are so diffused now, film is no longer the center of what we go to, to see. Right. I really don't think so. Um, I think, like watching Breaking Bad, I love it because clearly they were taken by surprise Suddenly they got to write more stuff, and they started playing, yeah. and they got really clever. And it was, and they, and they ended beautifully. He didn't say what I knew he was going to say. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anything, but and, and, and my name is uh, my middle name is Vance. Vance Gilliam, Vince Gilligan. I could have been soulmates. A couple, <laughs> a couple letters difference. I could have been rich and famous like Vince Gilligan. <laughs> And he's got lots of doors. He does, many doors. Uh, you have a few. Let's not go crazy here. Um, so what is on the to-do list after you, you're finished talking this one? Is it, is, it, uh, is, it, is it both Defective Detective and to see where yeah, we're at with yeah, Coyote? Yeah, that's what we're playing with, yeah. And I think, I mean, it's this awful thing of going back to old things, but they're good things, and they've been lying, you know, lying dead. And, and I think that's what I feel, you know, I hate wastage. I hate this... These scripts that we've written that have been stuck in the bowels of a certain studio, let's get it out and see if we can play with it. Yeah. And, uh, because it is, I, I'm really got, I really got to the point, I don't know what, other than the things I've already tried to make and will continue to, what to do beyond that as a new idea. And right. thing is, I, I find each time I, I do a film, it's really me sort of building... Uh, my idea of what the world is, or at least an aspect of the world at any moment. I don't know what, the, I don't know what it is anymore. My wife says, you've got to take a holiday. you just got to get away from thinking about it, go out and experience something completely different, um, and, and, and see where it goes. Uh, I keep looking at the Python animation in the, in the, in the show, at the, uh, the Python show, and it was getting, in many reviews, it was getting the best uh, comments, because it still seemed to be surprising and fresh and new. And I. Right. Uh, that was done by another guy, same name, different guy, um, and it's and I don't know if I get my brain working like that again. That just uh, 
that had the advantage of having a show that existed. You didn't have to sell anything. Right. You had to fill up the time, the half hour uh, each show. Uh, and that, once you're in that situation, it's very different because if it came to go out, going out now and tried to pitch something, I don't even know what they're looking for, right. what the world is out there in, in the world of cinema anymore. Do, do you ever feel that like your career has been compromised in any way by the fact that like left brain, right brain, you, you, you're, you, 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 you don't give a shit or you're not as good at the business side of things as the creative side? It's, you know, it's a bit of both. I mean, I, I mean, the business side, I mean, Time Bandits, I own 33% of it. I should be very rich. The company has been gone into bankruptcy several times. And here's the great thing about companies. Th their job is to uh, bring in the money and then share it out to the, those who own it. And they all, when they go bankrupt, all the money goes to the banks and not to the guys who are the creditors. Right. It's happened three times now on Time Bandits. So it's, and at a certain point, it happened at Jabberwocky, but at the end, um, the producer made more money than I thought he should have made, and I didn't. And I said, all right, I got to make the film. The film exists. Uh, that's what I'm really good at. Yeah. The money is the cherry on the cake, and I didn't get the cherry, so I got what I wanted. I mean, you've never done a job for money. You've no. never done the money job, it no, seems. No, no, no. It's just, I don't know how. Yeah. Uh, because I can only make a film if I really believe I'm doing something that is, is worthwhile doing or interesting. I, I don't know how, to, I'm not a director, that's the, the simple fact. Um, I look at, when I, that's what's interesting, I look at Breaking Bad uh, or The Killing, the work is really good, the directorial work is really good, the camera work, the characters, so, and, and it's very weird. When I start a film, I don't know how to do any of that. It is it's such a strange thing, and then I say, turnover and action and things start happening and oh I kind of do know how to do something. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you if you're not a director? What would you uh, I don't know. on the passport, I, I on, the, on the immigration I, form, what would, what would yeah, you put? I, I always said filmmaker. Okay. That's what, because uh, I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a director. A director is a guy who can take any project and make, and put it on the film. I can't do that. Right. Um, I thank you so much for your time today. Sir, five-year-old Josh Horowitz thanks you for setting him on a path of loving crazy films. And uh, Zero Theorem is, is the latest, and I, I encourage everybody to check it out. It's, it's been such a pleasure to, to go down thank memory lane with you, sir. For this near-death experience. <laughs> Good luck getting out of Times Square. <laughs> evade Bubba Gump, evade all the fast food places, and just get out of here. There's no, you can't get a car anymore. They've blocked it off. Broadway has, has been cut in the middle, hasn't it? It's true. We People. might be here forever. Oh, no. <laughs> Sorry. But the office is actually beautiful, and I am very comfortable in this lush lounge. <laughs> Don't lie to me. Don't lie to them. They know. Um, thank you, sir. Thanks for your time. Thank you. <laughs> That's terrible. That was so much fun. <laughs>